Let us pray. So, Father, we thank you that Christ is indeed our mighty fortress, and that he will, he must win the battle. We know that is your truth and your promise. So renew us in that hope. Renew us in steadfast faith. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you. And good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. We're so glad that you've joined us as well. We're going to dive right in this morning, so take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, or there are some Bibles under the pews you can grab as well, and turn to our Gospel reading from the first chapter of St. Mark's Gospel, verses 21 through 28. This will be our focus this morning. Um, as I think I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, we're now in, at, with the beginning of Advent in what we call lectionary year B. So there's a three-year cycle of scripture readings for Sundays, and year B focuses primarily for gospel readings on the gospel of Mark. Um, year A is Matthew, year C is Luke, and then John's gospel is interspersed through all three years. Much of my focus in sermons this year, as I've previously mentioned, will be us more fully understanding what it means in our lives and the life of this church to be and to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. This idea of living as a disciple encompasses greater biblical understanding, personal growth and formation, growth as a church family, and learning also to be more effectively in telling others and acted upon what it means to truly be and live out the reality of being a disciple of Jesus. Turning now to Mark 1. For many of us, the attention as we look at this passage from Mark 1, 21 through 28, goes immediately to Jesus casting out the demon who was possessing the man in the synagogue. However, hear this. The demonic deliverance is not really the central focus of this encounter. It points to the central focus. Rather, the central focus, the central point in this text is the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus Christ. And there are a whole host of ways in which we see Jesus exercising his divine authority as the Messiah and as the eternal Son of God in Mark's Gospel. In today's reading and in other places, we see Jesus exercising divine authority in his teaching and also authority over demons. And I'll come back to both of these shortly where we'll spend much of our focus today. But in Mark's gospel and the other three gospels as well, we also see Jesus exercising his divine authority in other ways. Three other ways that we see in Mark's gospel are, one, the authority to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 6 through 11, we read this. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. We see Jesus in Mark 11 taking authority over the temple 
and its administration. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And then finally, we see Jesus conferring authority on his apostles to proclaim the gospel and to expand his attack upon demonic power. In Mark 6, we read this, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So we see Jesus exercising divine authority in a range of ways. But now let's circle back for a few minutes and look at just Jesus' divine authority here in Mark 21 through 28. First, we see the divine difference in his teaching. Our gospel reading begins by informing us that it is the Sabbath, and it says that they went to, the, to Capernaum. And the inference here is that Jesus was accompanied by the first disciples he had called, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Those he called in the verses immediately prior to this encounter, if we back up in John um, 16 through 20, we see him calling Peter and Andrew and then James and John. And we also read that Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching in verse 21. Synagogues in that day functioned not only in local villages as a place of prayer, but they were also community centers. They very much were the hub of the community. And it was common for synagogue leaders to invite visiting teachers to speak, especially on the Sabbath. Typically, a synagogue, particularly in rural areas, was overseen by a scribe. We hear that term a lot in the scriptures. Most of the scribes in Jesus' day were connected to the Pharisees, although they were connected with other religious groups as well, but primarily with the Pharisees. And the function of the scribes was one of teaching and interpreting the Old Testament law in that time and context. They also instructed and taught students of the law and sat at times as judges um, to mediate disputes involving the law, including civil disputes in the village. But their teaching was primarily one of conveying facts and information. To be clear, for anyone who engages in a ministry of teaching, facts and information and striving to have all of this correct is incredibly important. Don't miss what I'm saying here. But look at the contrast that we see here between their teaching, the teaching of the scribes, and the teaching of Jesus. Verse 22 And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority 
and not as the scribes. The nature and content of the teaching of Jesus was remarkably different and distinct. It stood in stark contrast to the teaching of the scribes. Why? Because Jesus' teaching was not simply the conveying of facts and information. Rather, Jesus spoke with divine authority. He spoke with a commission from God the Father. He spoke as one, as the scriptures say, who had authority. Jesus' teaching here, of which the exact content isn't even described, is not mere theoretical reflection. It is a teaching much more aligned with the ministry of the Old Testament prophets who spoke as spirit-empowered mouthpieces of God than it is in the tradition of the scribes who conveyed information and facts. You see, the teaching, as Scripture says, of the scribes lacked genuine divine power and authority. But Jesus, like the prophets of old, but even in greater measure, shook things up through his teaching, through the authority he had in his teaching. In Jesus' presence, through his teaching, his hearers, Scripture says, are astonished. And the idea here conveys them being disturbed or stirred up, stirred up within by what they're hearing because Jesus' authoritative teaching pierced their hearts. As one commentator, actually two commentators I read said, we can even say that they were alarmed at Jesus' words. It got their attention. Because Jesus' teaching brings the kingdom of God near. And with this inbreaking of God's kingdom in new and fresh ways with the coming of Jesus as Messiah, people are confronted with the absolute claim of God upon their lives, upon their whole person. Jesus' teaching even today confronts us and confronts others with the reality of God's claim upon our lives, upon our whole person. And his teaching called people to a response. You couldn't just ignore it. It called for a response, even if that response was rejection and being repulsed by Jesus. <clears throat> Second, we have the divine difference of his power over demonic spirits. And this is the second act of Jesus exercising his divine authority, which we see here in this reading. The disturbance which Jesus brought with his, through his authoritative teaching now escalates as this demon-possessed man cries out right there inside the synagogue. And, he immediate, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The man and the demons in him cry out in part because of Jesus' divine presence and authority are a threat to the very existence of those demonic powers. It's important to note here, something comes through very clearly, is that the demonic spirits understand who Jesus is, and they understand the authority that he has. 
They understand this far better and more clearly than those in the synagogue who are there taking all this in, observing what is happening. Again, verse 24, what do you, have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. They don't only recognize Jesus' authority, they recognize his divinity. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus is the bearer of the Spirit of God. William Lane in his commentary on this text says, the unclean spirit recognizes Jesus as the Holy One of God, the bearer of the Holy Spirit, and an unclean spirit there exists and excuse me, and an un, the bearer of the Holy Spirit, and an unclean spirit, there exists a deadly antithesis that the demons know. They understand the difference between the presence of deity, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and unclean spirits. And there's another stark contrast here, which is important for understanding. Attempts at exorcism in that day and frankly, in many parts of the world in our day, usually involved elaborate incantations, pronouncing spells over demons, or some sort of magical action. Things which, ironically, were often demonic in and of themselves. Coming against one demon power with, by incanting another demon power, even if the person didn't realize that's what they were doing. And sometimes magicians that engage in these practices also tried to subdue demons by identifying and invoking their names. And we might be seeing some of that in reverse here when they refer to Jesus as the Holy One of God. Because in that culture, to know the name of someone or to know the name of a spiritual being was believed to give you power over that person or being. But attempted exorcism by magicians and the like involved all kinds of histrionic actions. For example, the historian Josephus reports that an exorcist named Eliezer put incredibly foul-smelling roots up a man's nose um, in hope that this man who he, they, Eliezer believed was demon-possessed in the hopes that the demon wouldn't be able to withstand the smell and would come out of the man. But there's none of this with Jesus. Be silent and come out of him. This is all Jesus had to say. No histrionics, no incantations, no embellishments, no messing around. The demon was powerless before the sovereign divine authority of Jesus Christ. And everyone there marveled. It blew them away. Verse 28, and once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The divine difference we see in Jesus and his authority over demonic forces. And then finally, the divine difference that Jesus makes in our lives. Jesus' teaching was with divine authority that set people on edge. 
It called not for the gathering of facts and information. Instead, it mandated a response, positive or negative, embracing him or rejecting him, but it mandated a response in Jesus and subsequently through his Holy Spirit-empowered disciples, God's eternal kingdom has and continues to break into this world in new and demonstrably powerful ways. Not because of his disciples, but because of the presence of the Spirit of God and the authority of Jesus Christ in and through them and us. Power that stands the kingdoms, the temporal powers, and spiritual forces of wickedness in this world on their heads. Jesus' presence stirs up and even disturbs people. And that is precisely the point. Again, to quote Lane's commentary, in the presence of Jesus, men are disturbed. And this disturbance is the precise act of fishing to which Jesus has called the four fishermen here. What did Jesus say to them, backing up just a little bit, Mark 1, when he called them? Follow me, and you will become fishers of men. This call comes down to us as disciples of Jesus to this very day. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Does our teaching those of us who are called to ministry of teaching, there are many of you sitting out here who are. Does our teaching reflect this divine and eternal reality? Do we teach with authority? Not our authority, but the authority of the Holy One of God. Or do we fall into that trap and snare of the scribes where it's about conveying information and that's all. Yes, conveying of information and facts is important, but our teaching, the words we speak, how God leads us and guides us as we seek him to present that teaching will always be life, and tra will be life transforming. The spirit of God will use it to apply it to our hearts and lives and those we teach in a way that confronts in a way that transforms, in a way that builds up in the faith. We can have facts and information till the cows come home, but if it doesn't translate into transformation, it's of no avail. And what about in our interaction with the world, people who don't know Jesus? Do we speak to them as disciples of Jesus with ones with authority? That doesn't mean arrogance. That doesn't mean haughtiness. That doesn't mean obnoxiousness. It means gracious love, but, but speaking truth. Not in the weakness of the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit. Because we speak truth and grace in the power of the Holy Spirit God grips people's hearts. God begins to draw them. And some of them may be repulsed. But the authority of Jesus will call them and lead them to a response. And what about in our confrontation with powers of darkness? Knowing that those powers have no hold or authority over the people of God as we stand in the authority of Jesus Christ.
and any power or authority they have over us is because we have somehow yielded that to them and made space for place for that in our lives. And in the lives of others, as the Lord is, we can speak life and we can speak truth. And it doesn't need to be, as we see sometimes, quite frankly, even in Christian circles, a bunch of histrionics. But if Jesus, as we walk with him humbly as his disciples, gives us that same authority that we see, it doesn't need to be a bunch of histrionics. We simply take authority in Jesus' name. That's not superstition. That's not magical formulas. Don't get sucked into that sort of thing. It's the authority of the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He calls us to be fishers of men. That's part of growing and being a disciple. If we're not being fishers of men and women, then we're not really growing as disciples in the way he wills and desires for us to grow. But it also means growing personally in our understanding and knowledge and intimacy with the Lord. It means growing together as a church family. It means seeking to be continually filled with the presence of Jesus because it's not us. It's his presence that touches people. It is his presence that brings them into new and eternal life. It is his presence that brings the realities of God's kingdom to bear right here, right now, as we serve him, as we walk with him, as we obey him, as we do the things he said that we would do as his disciples. That's God's call to us. It's a call that is completely overwhelming and impossible if we rely even for one moment on the weakness of the flesh. But it is a call we can walk in and live out as a reality as we humbly walk and follow our Lord as his disciple. Let us pray. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory and honor and authority and dominion and power. So, Lord, rid us of self. Fill us with your presence. Lord, put a burning passion in our hearts and lives above all else to walk with you as Holy Spirit-empowered, committed, faithful disciples. We thank you that you have not left us powerless, you have not left us helpless, but you have sent the comforter, the Holy Spirit of God himself, the third person of the Trinity, not only to walk with us, but to fill us with your divine presence, to continue your work until you return. So Lord, equip us and fill us. May we look to you and not shrink back in fear. May we not shrink back in doubt. May we not stumble by trusting in the flesh or ourselves or looking at things through the eyes of the flesh. But empower us anew and afresh to love and serve you and continue to more fully surrender to you 
to see you work and do great and glorious things in our day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.